Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to address the impacts of COVID-19 by increasing local food supply, investing in youth with scholarships, and helping to support the needs of the most vulnerable island residents. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. We're told it this morning, if you drive along Kauaihau, Cummings, Ilaniwai, Waimanu, and Queen, you will see streets that are freshly patched. It took a 10-year legal battle to get to the bottom of who actually owns the roads and to get someone to finally fix them. A judge recently ruled in favor of the city and state and against two brothers, Cedric and Calvert Chun, and the Kaka'ako Land Company, who claimed the streets as their own and began charging rent for parking. So what happens next? Well, we hear from Scott Psyche, the area lawmaker, who also happens to be Speaker of the House. We also talked to Roger Babcock, director of the city's facilities maintenance department. In 2010, when Kakako Land Company took control over several roads in Kakako, they put up no parking signs, they towed vehicles, charged for parking, blocked pedestrian access, and it was because of a lawsuit that was brought by small businesses and attorney general that we finally got a decision in the court that has put an end to this. Um, so I just want to thank the residents and, and businesses for their patience. Residents prevailed against this company that was doing something that was really wrong. What can you tell us about the appeal deadline? The appeal deadline for Kakako Land Company, since they lost, is April. It's around April 15th. We have one week left to decide whether they're going to appeal the judge's decision that was against them. Uh, the judge ruled that Kakako Land Company never owned these roads and that the roads needed to be returned to the general public and to the government. I've reached out to uh, the attorneys and uh, I've not gotten a response, but the state and the city just said, look, we've got to deal with the pothole situation because the poor businesses have been waiting for so long and those holes were huge. Roger, what's the latest this morning? Well, the update is there were a little over 100 potholes uh, that we that we filled and uh, like you say, these were not your average potholes. So it took quite a bit of material, took four truckloads. We have a right of entry agreement with the state right now to go in and they've requested us to do a Maintenance. Presumably, the, the city will be working with the state to accept the roads as city. Once that happens, then we can bring in our Department of Transportation Services. They'll do assessments of what striping should be there, where parking should be, again, on kind of a temporary basis. And then on a long-term basis, they'll be looking at how we need to upgrade the streets. So we need to add drainage. We need to think about essentially complete streets. We need to look at sidewalks. For pedestrians and disabled, we need to look at bikes, motorcycles, cars, trucks, and greenery actually is, is part of a complete street. So that's a long-term process and will be very expensive. If additional large-scale development comes to the area, then generally the developers of new large projects would be making improvements in the vicinity of their developments. And so that will also help with the process as we move forward. But these things will take quite a bit of time. <laughs> well, Scott, I, I know you had gotten everybody together. You had the folks from the AG's office and I believe Corp Council and both sides of the of the fence here to say, how do we move forward? The judgment that you were able to get talks about what recouping some of the money uh, for some of the businesses that were charged for parking uh, by the Kalkaka Land Company. Yes, I would kind of describe this as being two phases for the loss of the lawsuit. The first phase was the trial, which resulted in the decision uh, that we received in November. You know, the Attorney General's office took that to trial. So I really want to thank the Attorney General's office as well. The second phase, which the Attorney General is pursuing, will be a 
enforcement, I'm assuming that over the past years, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars were paid to park on these roads. And the claim that the Attorney General is going to bring is one for unfair and deceptive act, which is a specific remedy in the law that provides that the person who's responsible doesn't just pay for what they took from people, but they actually have to pay three times the amount that they took from people. So if it's a million dollars that was paid over the years, the Kakaka Line Company could potentially be responsible for $3 million. So I, I hope that the Attorney General will be successful in this phase two of the lawsuit. And the state lawsuit isn't the only one. I think there was another one filed by the auto dealership, BMW folks, yeah. I think. Do you know the status of that? Or how does the, the state's win affect that one? Five or six years ago, BMW, which is between Kokapiolani and Waimana Street, filed a lawsuit because they were being charged for the use of the road uh, next to their dealership on, on Waimanu. So they fought a lawsuit against Kakak, the land company, and they won, and the uh, roads have been transferred to the city. Okay. So that it's, it is, it's separate from, from this current lawsuit. But those roads will also get fixed? Yes, because they're not now under the city's jurisdiction. Now, I know the Kakako Land Company also has a couple of other lanes in Waikiki, Cartwright and Lemon, and, and uh, you know, those are probably separate, but, I mean, uh, Roger, I don't know. Do you know anything about that? I'm not positive. I, I think Lemon uh, was purchased by someone else, but I'm not sure about Cartwright and, uh, and actually whether or not we are maintaining Cartwright. I know that we do maintain Lemon. If Kakako Land Company purchased those roads under the same circumstances as the Kakako roads, then I think there's also liability there as well. You know, I had heard that Kakako Land Company sold these roads over the past few years for millions of dollars. And I'm not sure who the purchasers were, but if I was the one who purchased one of those roads, I would be looking at filing a lawsuit as well because Kakako Land Company had no right to sell them in the first place. Okay, so that remains to be seen how that's going to yeah. play itself out. And then uh, anything else you can share with us, Roger, just for the long term? I mean, how long could it be before the state actually transfers o- ownership of, of those roads in Kaka'ako to the city? And then will any of the businesses be assessed for some of these improvements? That will depend upon our city council and the state deciding however urgent it is. I don't know that it's super urgent. You know, we're going to be, we, we have an agreement to maintain them, so that will continue. And then presumably the city would accept the streets. The, the state doesn't want to own those kind of streets, and the, it's proper for it to be city streets. And then we would go through the process, and the process of really getting them finally upgraded to modern standards will take a few years because there has to be a design process. We have to figure out what is really the roadway and where properties end, and, and then we have to go in and and uh, engineering design has to be done, and then construction contracts awarded, and then construction. And so each of those things can take a year or more. So, you know, that'll take some time. But in the meantime, the roads will be maintained. There's one other thing I I wanted to mention. There sometimes can be some confusion about what gets maintained and and what doesn't. Basically, we maintain the roadway where vehicles traverse, And then the part that's outside of that, like a driveway, for example, you know, the city doesn't maintain. Even though it might be city property line, your driveway is is your responsibility. So there's still going to be some potholes there that are out of the 
traffic way, but those are the responsibilities of the of the businesses. So just like at your home, you, you have to maintain your driveway. Even though that's in the right-of-way and the city owns it, you still have to maintain it. I know that there at the corner of Cook and Koihau, there there's a high-rise going up there that was approved by HCDA, and I'm not sure in the design of that what was included for drainage, uh, because you're a, you're a water guy, and you know those issues are, are a biggie. Absolutely. So drainage is, is huge, and, and drainage infrastructure is, is quite expensive. Uh, you know, there's a lot of excavation, and pipes have to be sized correctly and sloped correctly and all that kind of stuff. And, and so there are known drainage issues in, in this area. And those you know, those will have to be addressed, and um, it you know it can be done, and it will be done, but it's just going to you know take a little while you know to get there. So there wouldn't be um, assessments for the work we're doing to maintain the roads of, of the you know of the business owners when you're seeking building permits for future development or new development. Then upgrading of of infrastructure is generally part of that permit. I want to thank Mayor Blangiardi and Roger for all of their work on this. Um, you know, they just, they, when this court decision came down, they didn't flinch. They immediately worked with us to see how they could begin to repair the roads, and I really appreciate that. And the second thing is, I, I think that one other claim that the state and the city will have to explore is whether they can seek reimbursement against Kakako Land Company for the cost of all of the improvements that have to be made at, be made at this point, because... You know, it's really, it's not right that the Kakako Line Company took control of these roads for 10 years and then didn't maintain them, and then all of a sudden just hands them over to, to the state and the city and makes, you know, makes the taxpayers pay, pay for the neglect uh, over the 10-year period. So I think that's another claim that we need to uh, be looking at. That was a conversation we had this morning with House Speaker Scott Zyke and Roger Babcock, City Facilities Director, about the next legal steps and the long-term plan for rehabilitating those Kakako streets that have long been in limbo. Support for HPR comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. This is The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, earlier this month, Kauai's Ho'ola Lahui Hawaii received over a million dollars from the American Rescue Plan. It's to continue its work providing health care services to rural and underserved communities. Ho'ola's medical director and family medicine physician, Kapono Chong Hansen, sat down with the conversation's Lillian Sang to talk about lessons learned during the pandemic and vaccine access for the Garden Isle. When we got the news, we were all happy. But it was like, okay, let's get working on what we're going to do with that money, which I made my suggestions. Other people in our organization are going to put in their input as well, and our CEO will make the determinations. For me, we were already planning on trying to at least help meet the vaccination needs of our community because our district health office is doing a great job of meeting those needs on Kauai. 
So it was already an urgent issue for us, and we were already pursuing grant funding to hire more staff to be able to increase our capacity. Right now, we're really focused on the work at hand, getting these vaccinations done for our first wave, and that grant money, as far as I would say, is going to support our ability to keep on doing similar services, possibly expand, and then maybe um, you know, purchase equipment that we could use. Right now, a lot of what we're doing is just through basically informal partnerships that we all just realize we need to help with the pandemic and get things moving in the right direction. So take us back. What was that first wave like for you on Kauai a year ago? I remember in March, I started calling leaders of the different hospitals where our clinics are located and just other healthcare entities on the island to talk about how we're going to handle the situation. You know, we're talking about patient flow, who can come into our clinics to be evaluated, how could we test them for COVID if we need to. And at that time, I think there was starting of sort of confusion and frustration about who can be tested. And at that point, we had to contact the Department of Health to see if someone should be tested for COVID or not. And it was restricted um, fairly aggressively. So through some of those conversations, we ended up sort of making an informal group with Dr. Janet Berryman, who's our district health officer. We started having a conference call once a week with medical directors from Hawaii Health Systems Corporation, with Wilcox, Hawaii Pacific Health, and Kaiser, and then other private practice physicians in the community, and started making strategies Dr. Berryman, I think, did a great job working with hospital leadership, and we started offering drive-through testing at Wilcox and then eventually through KVMH Hospital in Waimea, which was just a huge relief for all of us. Because of the limited PPE supply, too, that was the other aspect. How can we protect our staff and still actually be able to test people when we only have, like, 30 and 95 masks? So that was the beginning of it. And then HRSA contacted us and gave us a grant to try to improve testing access on the island. So that was another thing where I started making connections with people, discussing, well, what's the smartest way to do this when the testing supplies are extremely limited? And as I started calling for the limited supplies, lots of times they'd say, well, you're not a state government entity or, or, and we're not allowed to work with anyone who's not in government. But HRSA, the feds, you know, were giving us this money with the idea that we were going to help improve access to testing. So... That was a journey that lasted almost the entire year as we started trying to negotiate with hospitals, the clinical lab company, the testing platforms, and eventually we did purchase a testing platform for KVMH, and they had to install a called a biosafety cabinet or a hood mm. to be able to use the, the test. But in December of 2020, we finally made it happen, and so it's frankly a pretty frustrating process. But we're in a better place now as far as testing goes, and certainly overall on the island we are with our testing capacity. And most of our tests now um, are done on island, and we get the results within 24 hours, which is a big, big improvement. You know, if your result takes five or seven days, it's almost like you're past the infectious period by the time you get the results. So you know, there's limitations there. We all really prioritize on island testing with rapid results. That hard work was really worth it because now you get the test results quickly. You guys have control. You're no longer reliant on somebody else, and it's all done on island. It has been a learning curve for everyone. And now that vaccines are part of the arsenal to fight against COVID, tell us about your work with the houseless community. 
Sure. I, I think one of the smartest decisions our county administration made was early on in the pandemic to issue these shelter-in-place camping permits for our houseless or unsheltered residents on the island. So there are five different county parks where people could get permits to essentially have a campsite and stay there. And I think many of them did from, if I remember correctly, it was a summer, maybe June, maybe earlier, maybe May of 2020 when it started. So when that happened, the district health office contacted us and we partnered with KEO, um, Kauai Economic Opportunity and yeah and the district health office workers so we've made a team an outreach team that will go to all the camping sites and provide masks and hygiene supplies and education about the pandemic and we also plan to be able to offer testing at the unsheltered camping sites or at least specimen collection and offer testing that's kind of how it all got started this team went out pretty much every week unless there was a weather issue or something like that to all of the sites and thankfully, we really didn't have very much testing needs. Oh, and I should mention there's another nonprofit here called Malama Pono who was making similar efforts. There are, you know, a lot of other sites where unsheltered or houseless people might be that are not actually permitted. So they decided to go to those places. So, you know, between all of us, I think we caught a lot of that population, you know, with the education and hygiene supplies and then built relationships with those people, built some trust. So... By the time the vaccines were available, we already kind of had those connections, and the district health office asked us if we could help, same thing, partner with them to do the vaccinations, and eventually they said, I think you guys can handle this. We're going to focus on, you know, doing our mass vaccinations at the convention hall. Can you guys kind of take the reins on this? And that's essentially what we did. So one of the, the locations, Anini Beach, we completed their vaccinations, I believe that was, March 26th, yeah. So we started, as soon as we heard the permits were going to expire, we started planning how to get the people vaccinated. And at that time, we only had Moderna vaccines, which meant we would have to do a second dose 28 days later. So we did February 26th and March 26th for Anini because it was the first site that was going to um, where the permits would expire. Before we administered the second dose to those individuals, we received some Johnson & Johnson vaccine through the help of our district health office. And so that was a big help because it's only a single dose and the refrigeration requirements aren't as hard and they come in vials of five rather than 10. So it's easier to administer without wasting the doses. Mm. So we caught up with more people at Salt Pond and Hanapepe. Um, there's a Salvation Army meal distribution. And so we caught up with people there last week. Most of these people signed up in the few weeks beforehand to let us know they were interested. And then we did Lucy Wright in Waimea last week. So today we're doing the houseless shelter on the island at KEO. Uh, and then next week we're going to be catching the last unsheltered camping site on the 16th as our tentative date. Now that we're kind of finishing up at the unsheltered sites, we're starting to hit those housing sites as well. Can you speak a little bit more about the housing sites and what's going on there? Well, we've just gotten started there. We've done vaccinations at two of those sites. Um, and essentially, the county just gave us a list of all the public housing, affordable housing areas and the names of the managers with their contact information. So we reached out to all of them, said this is what we want to do. 
you know, can you let us know when would be a good time, a good day, and, and that's essentially what we're doing, just coordinating those right now. So we have another two sites planned on Saturday the 10th. Because in the mornings on Saturday, we vaccinate our own patients at the clinic, and then in the afternoon, we go out to the housing site because we're trying to do at least one site done on each side of the island every Saturday. And then we also vaccinate our own patients in our clinics on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Okay. You guys have really great partnerships and just working relationships on Kauai. And so it, it feels like things are just clicking and gelling there. I think that's accurate. I think we just at least get along well enough that we can work together through all these different organizations that, you know, in some ways could be perceived as competitors to each other. But, you know, for this pandemic, stand together for it. So we're small enough that we can get a, and, and it's also small enough that you can have a meeting with five people. So it's just quicker and not to be cynical, but I think it's also that we can't point fingers at anyone else. You know, I'm the only federally qualified health center. So, you know, I can't say, oh, well, those guys should do it, not us. You know, mm. we know we should do it. So I think we've benefited from that type of collaboration and that's resulted in what I think of as pretty impressive numbers for the island as a whole. The heaviest weight has been carried by the district health office and then the hospitals, but, you know, we've contributed in our own way and getting a lot of the most vulnerable people on the island and the most difficult to reach. That was Ho'ola Lahue Hawaii's medical director, Dr. Kapono Chong Hansen. He says his health center has administered over 400 doses of Moderna to patients with a total of 216 completed vaccinations and 254 awaiting the second dose. Close to half of those vaccinated patients identify as Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. back with the conversation. And the Aloha Stadium plan burdening the taxpayer is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell joins us this morning. Hi, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. So I understand this is kind of an update on what's been called the superpowers bill. That's right. This is a proposal that the legislature has tried to get through in the past couple of sessions. The goal is to transfer authority to development, develop the stadium and surrounding 98 to over to this board called the Stadium Authority. But there's one important change in the bill, and it's going to get a little bit wonky, so please bear with me, everybody. Uh, basically, the changing the financing structures uh, to where before it was kind of like a 50-50 split where stadium revenues would account for half the construction costs, and then uh, taxpayers would pick up the other half. But now House Bill 1348 is changing that to where uh, the entire $350 million worth of the state's investment is going to be borne by taxpayers from the general fund. And so it's a pretty significant, you know, dollar figure to keep picking up. Now, the redevelopment plan of that area calls for, like, what, hotels, you know, uh, uh, you know a new stadium, right, and, and uh, other, like, retail space? Exactly. It's not just the 
stadium that would be developed. So that's what the state money would be spent on. Officials are hoping that the stadium would eventually spur a giant real estate development around the stadium. You know where the parking lot is right now. Uh, you know, there's supposed to be lots of retail, lots of hotels, some condominiums, affordable housing. And the idea is that all of that will, you know, make the tax investment worth it because the state can make tax revenues off of, you know, land leases, off of rent, and then, of course, off of any sales that people spend there. But some national experts have warned that the banking on those real estate developments come with a big risk. One expert I talked to pointed to the KFC Yum Center in Louisville. Uh, it was a similar situation here. They built a new arena trying to get an NBA team in the hopes that the arena would spur development in the surrounding area. But that area never really got, never really took off enough taxpayers on the hook to pay back the full, full cost of the arena. Well, you know, it is kind of scary because we've got the situation with the rail and you see those costs going up, you know, that whole back and forth on the private-public partnership. And so now you've got this thing, uh, the stadium redevelopment, and, you know, the rail is supposed to go right by there. So, you know, ideally then that, you know, makes that site more uh, lucrative because you've got a way for folks to be able to get into that area. Uh, but, you know, yeah, like you said, it's it's more risk on the taxpayer if they change it this way. That's the idea, and uh, a lot of comments have made, you know, parallels between the rail and this project. Uh, after the rail and then, you know, if way ever gets the prison going, this is going to be one of the largest public works projects that we undertake, and he's worried that it will turn into another boondoggle. Now, obviously, state officials are hoping that won't happen, but... Uh, no, that it's also up in the air. The state's pursuing, um, you know, this E3 that they're moving for, and they're expecting to select the stadium developer uh, sometime early next year. Now, whether or not they select another developer uh, further down the road, that's still yet to be seen until a few years off. And so, as far as the stadium itself, I'm reading in your article that the swap meet has been, uh, you know, among the biggest money makers there over the last couple of decades. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I pulled this old report from the 1960s that the city did when they were thinking about planning the stadium. You know, they wanted to tear, they wanted to tear down the one uh, on King Street where Old Stadium Park is now and build the current one. And, you know, the consultants they hired expected them to attract a major league baseball team and a professional football team. And that's what would pop up the state revenue. <laughs> I mean, the stadium revenue. But in fact, for the past couple of decades, the swap meet, you know, that happens every uh, twice a week now, that's been its most successful event ever. And in fact, it accounts for more than half of the stadium revenues for almost every year that we reviewed. I know, that's crazy. That's really crazy. Uh, so, yeah, so where where does the bill sit in, in our legislative process? So it's actually at the tail end of the legislative process. It passed the Ways and Means Committee last week and so it has another full vote by the senate next week uh this is one that's probably going to be headed to you know we call it conference committee and that's in the house and senate they meet and hash out their differences over a bill okay. if we get past that then it should be transmitted to the governor's desk hmm, sometime early may all right well we know you'll be tracking it thanks so much blaze <laughs> definitely thanks that was reporter blaze level with today's reality check to read his story visit civilbeat.org
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Bavarian Motor Experts. The Royal Room is one of the newest additions to Waikiki. Opened in partnership with the Hawaiian Music Hall of Fame, the Royal Room celebrates Hawaii's musical heritage from the monarchy era to the present day with museum-quality exhibits. We are rebroadcasting an interview that we did with Kumuhula Blaine Kia, who grew up in the Beachwalk area and who was proud to share and showcase his heritage. The Royal Room is a combination of two wonderful cultural attributes of the Hawaiian culture. One happens to be mele, which is the music of Hawaii, and the other happens to be hulu, which is the feather-making of our ancient people. And both of them are very much a part of the symbolism of what royalty represents. We know that when it comes to chief, chiefesses, kings and queens, we know that's universal in a sense for many cultures around the world. And here in Hawaii, our ancient birds played a significant role in our compositions, but they've also played a significant role in our royalty in terms of its jewelry and the quality of jewelry. And making these beautiful adornments with feathers of our birds were a very significant part of how you know birds are of the sky, and Hawaiians feel that with royalty, we are so much a part of the heavens. And so the birds became a very significant part of poetry, and part of that legacy and esteemed value of our birds and how they represent our kings, ahuula, their capes, their helmets, things of that sort. Then you have the mele, right, where we take our ancient texts and we have put them to just beautiful compositions of music and where birds are also celebrated in a lot of our ancient past. Music is also a very big part of our culture in the Renaissance of the late 70s into the 80s. And so people like the late Gabby Pops, Pahinui, Afro-Apaka, Lina Machado, Charles E. King have all made tremendous contributions to our culture. So with the combined efforts of Hawaii Music Hall of Fame, run by President Tony Lee, and Namili Hulu no Eau, three incredible women, a grandmother, a mother, and now one of their children now taking over. Her name is Mele Kahalipuna Chan. So they are the two um, people that are running uh, the Royal Room at the Wahi Beach Plaza. And as we acknowledge the contribution and the history of music and arts, it's a source of pride because our ali'i, composed mele, and a lot of those songs are played today. Yeah, there's this stereotype mentality about Waikiki, first of all, right? That it's very marketable, you know, un-Hawaiian, but to be honest, that's where it really starts. And Waikiki was a place where our kings and queens would always go. They had summer homes there. It was always Hawaiian, and it continues to be Hawaiian. So people like myself, who is a cultural advisor, born and raised in Waikiki, the youngest of nine children, we all worked and played in Waikiki. And it's important to be mindful that it is a place for Hawaiians. It is a place of culture, of education. And I think Audrey Resorts and the Waikiki Truck is doing a wonderful job by making sure that the host culture is alive and well in Waikiki. It's very critical that we have a place like this where people can come and learn and be educated, and not by the glitz and the glamour of Waikiki, but truly the essence of who we are as a culture. Because once you get the real essence of who we are as a people, that's where the appreciation is. And so the Royal Room really brings about that kind of interaction where we can really, really educate people. And then they become long-term loyal people that perhaps 
we can stimulate them to to research further, you know, once they leave our islands and go home. And hopefully we've made an impact on them and they'll continue to understand our culture well. And I think, too, it's a wonderful opportunity to draw our residents down there to that spot. I mean, I walk Waikiki all the time, and I never tire of it. It's just nice to know the history. You know, there's the music industry and the extent of our reach and our influence on music worldwide, whether it's strings or hula or ukulele. I mean, you know, people like Taimani Gardner, right? She was discovered on the streets of Waikiki by Don Ho's folks. So just wonderful, rich history that we have to offer. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. You know, our our ancient people of our kupuna of the past, you know, they really set some incredible foundations for us. They laid these foundation stones so that we could pick them up, understand them, comprehend them, have the compassion for it, and then and to put it forth with everyone that travels here to Hawaii from all walks of life that come, that it is a kuleana. It's a responsibility that we have constantly every day to make sure that we are teaching and educating our visitors of truly our rich culture. Um, you know, we live in a 21st century where everything is now technically, mentally, intellectually driven to the point where sometimes the heart, the things that we all grew up with without this technology, you know, we're giving up some of that now. And it's important for us to rebound on those and make sure that they are in place for many more generations to come so that um, we don't forget what is truly spiritual because there was a time when we didn't have all these things, you know, and we were very creative back then as well. I believe the Royal Room at the Waikiki Beach Walk will definitely uh, provide that kind of insight so that we can continue with this bridging. Now, there has been a lot of effort toward trying to get a museum of dance and music. You know, they were talking about the convention center, but until something like that happens, at least we have this spot then on Beach Walk. Yeah, you know... Surprised you bring that up. Anyway, that's a long subject matter in itself, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But it's true. You know, we have different um, facets of our culture, private and in the public sector, as well as corporate, that have all of these creative ideas about a cultural center and a, and a hula cultural center and things of that sort. And yeah, and as we wait for these things to come about, what we are trying to do right now is find those bridges with our nonprofits and with our private sector cultural organizations because it's better together than to be alone in terms of being supportive in a much greater, greater level. And so that's why the this partnership with Hawaii Music Hall of Fame, Namili Hulu no Eel, along with Outrigger Resorts and the Waikiki Beach Walk, that's an important part of of gaining strength and gaining momentum and having fortitude and helping our organizations to stay afloat, to stay alive and to perpetuate and preserve and to keep it going because without that kind of partnership or kukua or help, um, we stand not to be an example for anyone else. Mm -hmm. So it's an example um, that Outrigger Resorts and Waikiki Beach Walk is putting forth by saying this is important. This is important for Waikiki, it's important for Honolulu, and it's important for the state of Hawaii that uh, we exemplify these kinds of partnerships that are terribly needed, more so now than ever before. Yeah, so this is a nice little spark in that corner of Waikiki. It, it, it really is. We're hoping that it's in perpetuity. Square footage in Waikiki is a whole lot of money. And so what Outrigger Resorts has done and the Waikiki Beach Walk has done is incredible. I mean, to allow this to, to flourish, to have it thrive and to live and to, uh, to represent 
the beauty of our culture, where Waikiki was a place where our kings and queens always went to. And we just need to continue that. And we're off to a good start. That was Blankia talking about the Royal Room, which is opened on Beach Walk in Waikiki. It is in the very neighborhood where Kia was born and raised and where his parents entertained and worked sharing Hawaiian culture.